Welcome to the Energy Intelligence Forum, and thank you for joining us. My name is Noah Brenner. I'm the Executive Editor for Operations at Energy Intelligence, and I'm coming to you from London, where it's my pleasure to host our Leadership Dialogue with Shell CEO Ben Van Burden. Now, the theme of our conference this year is an industry redefined, energy in an evolving world. Few companies have redefined themselves to the extent that Shell has over the past 12 months. In February, the company outlined its powering progress strategy that will increase activity in areas like renewable power, mobility, hydrogen, while focusing its oil and gas assets within core regions and industries. Now, in addition, Shell promised net zero emissions by 2050 and committed to increasing investor returns after its historic dividend cut last year. Now, in May, the company was pressured to cut emissions even faster by a landmark Dutch court ruling on climate change that is under appeal. Since then, Shell has successfully sold a raft of assets, including refineries globally, and most recently, its operations in the Permian Basin, with proceeds earmarked primarily to go back to investors. So I'm very happy to welcome Ben back to the forum once again this year to talk through how he sees Shell and the energy industry redefining itself to succeed in this rapidly evolving landscape. Ben, thank you for joining us. Good to see you, Noah. So let's start out with that strategy update. Now, Obviously, there's a lot to cover here, but what do you think are, say, the three most important things that you would like people to take away from Shell's powering progress strategy? Yeah, thanks. Well, I think a few things you mentioned yourself, but let me start off by saying that our strategy, powering progress, is a very holistic strategy in the sense that it covers what I believe are the four main goals that a modern company needs to pursue. So. Uh, indeed, looking after our shareholders, but also making sure that we become a net zero company, that we respect nature, and that, because we are an energy company, power lives. But the three specific things that we have laid out in some more detail, uh, very explicitly in our uh, powering progress strategy, is, uh, first of all, our capital allocation philosophy. And I talk here about capital allocation at all levels. So, first of all, the highest level, balance sheet, shareholders, investments, but also where do we invest in our portfolio? What criteria do we use for the different aspects of our portfolio? We've been very clear on that. We've been very clear, and this is point two, how we get to net zero. We have a very clear carbon management framework that looks after scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions, which I believe is the most comprehensive approach in the industry with detailed targets all the way up to 2050. And I think the most distinguishing feature of our uh, approach, uh, if I can call it that, is that we are going to have our strategy executed from the customer back. And I think in that sense, we are a little bit different from many of the sort of commodity producing companies. We very much focus on the products that a customer needs to get to net zero themselves and the value that is locked up in the business model in supplying these products. So we certainly have a lot of ground to cover in our conversation, sounds like, but um, I wanted to start with the most near-term news that we've heard, which is your sale of your assets in the Permian Basin. You brought in almost $10 billion, as I said, most of it earmarked to go back to shareholders. But you know, the Permian, it was a short cycle asset. It had lower carbon emissions than your portfolio average. It's located in a global demand center. You know, I, I guess what's not to love there? What, why didn't the Permian fit within Shell's plans going forward? Yeah, indeed, it's a very good asset. And of course, uh, we have worked very hard on this asset to turn it into what some have peop some people have said is the, was a crown jewel in our portfolio. And we indeed designated it as one of the core positions in our upstream uh, portfolio. Uh, 
But what it, what it did lack uh, was actually scale and running room. And uh, for those of you who have followed uh, the company uh, more closely over the last few years, we have worked very hard to see how we could extend the scale and the running room of that position, building on the strength of the capability that we had built up. And in many cases, we didn't succeed. Uh, so we were left with a high quality asset, but, a, but indeed an asset of low materiality and low uh, running room, given the nature and the scale of the operations that you need to really succeed. So when other opportunities started presenting themselves to monetize it, uh, it was what we had to look at as well as an, as an alternative strategy. And in the end, with the valuation that we managed to realize, I think this was a, a very attractive way of monetizing early what otherwise would have been monetized over a period of a few decades. And so, you know, in the past year, we've actually seen a couple of what I would term as quite surprising asset sales from Shell. I mean, in addition to the Permian Basin, there was the Deer Park refinery sale, which had previously been earmarked as uh, one of the six that you were going to develop into these integrated um, downstream complexes that, that are core to your downstream strategy there. So I guess what I'm wondering is what's changed in your view of the future, in your view of your business to, to make you reassess these, what were not too long ago, core assets? And, and I guess my question is really, is this simply about reducing emissions um, or, or what has caused this kind of, this kind of rethink on, on some of these core positions? Well, let's address the second part first and then get to the first part. So if you look at the Permian, the emissions associated with our Permian operations are very small. Uh, they're less than half a percent of our scope one emissions. And then our scope one emissions are 5% of our total emissions. So no, this was not an emissions reduction strategy. This was a portfolio rationalization strategy for the reasons that I mentioned. Um, Deer Park is a slightly different story. Of course, Deer Park, the refinery, has a, a, a more heavy emissions footprint. So it is a more tangible contribution to our 70 million tons of scope one emissions. Uh, but again, the strategy was not to reduce emissions. The strategy here was that, uh, yes, we had said we would reduce to six sites, uh, that we would then high grade and, and reconfigure into uh, efficient uh, energy and chemical parks. Uh, but uh, it, I must admit, Deer Park probably had the weakest plans in that list of six. And therefore, again, when we received an offer that was unsolicited, we had to evaluate whether that was perhaps a better plan than to have it in the family of six. And that turned out to be the case. But the key message is not so much that, oh, you know, things are changing. The key message is nothing is ever fixed. So our core assets, the things that we believe are indeed important for us today, may indeed change in terms of nature going forward. We also have a lean portfolio, by the way, in upstream that may also have elements in it that will become core if we indeed manage to find a very long life attractive position in these lean positions. So our position is never sta uh, stable or static. We have to evolve with the realities of the world around us. So keeping on this theme of, of asset sales, I mean, we're seeing um, growing concern about companies like Shell uh, who are seen as responsible operators selling assets, making, you know, transferring assets to, to other companies that might have less stringent environmental guidelines. Um, you know, uh, in, this happens in, in, you know, assets all around the world, particularly legacy assets. I mean, should the majors look to, to wind down these assets, as has been suggested by some, 
and to you know continue to own them rather than sell them to others. I mean, this is a trend that we're seeing emerge with with coal mines, with power plants. Um, is that a reasonable ask of the industry, and and what could that model look like? No, no. I have to be pretty blunt about it. I think that's a silly notion. Yeah. So it nobody is served by transferring assets from one to the other if we somehow try to play the game of hide and seek with uh, with emissions. Uh, in the end, I think assets may well change from one to the other company uh, if they just are more valuable in another company. And indeed, we will wind down operations when they come towards what we believe to be uh, the high quality economic life uh, that they have in our portfolio, with plenty of value still to be harvested by players who are more specialized or have priorities in slightly different places. That should be the natural order of things to somehow say, well, no, we can shift this away and then our emissions are gone and then the world is better off, as I said, is a silly notion. The whole idea, by the way, that we would just wind down our operations so that you know, the world would be better off as well, is also a silly notion. Uh, in the end, the world needs oil and gas products for a long time to come. That needs to be served, ideally with high quality companies like ourselves. And there is nothing illegitimate about it, even though many segments in society try to make out that somehow being in the oil and gas business is a, is a very, you know, um, somewhat detestable business model, which of course, again, as I said, is a silly notion. Well, I wanted to follow up on, on this emissions question. And, you know, <clears throat> the recent Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, their net zero standard, warns that using things like carbon offsets in particular to reach net zero rather than gross emissions reductions um, could be considered less credible by investors moving ahead that they're going to be looking for those gross reductions. So what I'm wondering is, does the use of carbon offsets have a long-term place in Shell's net zero strategy? And if so, how do you see it? Um, maintaining that position within within the strategy. Yeah, no, it will. It uh, I think uh, offsets, or I would rather say compensation and mitigation measures of emissions that cannot be avoided, will have to have a place in the climate strategy of the world. So therefore, also in our climate strategy. But make no mistake, two things. First of all, we believe that using, for instance, nature as a way to uh, capture and sequester uh, CO2 in trees and roots and soils, etc., is a not quite a, 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 the last resort, but it should be amongst the last resorts together with CCS. So the first order of priority is provide energy that is not carbon-based. Uh, but then, of course, there are quite a few areas of the energy system or the economy that cannot yet use no carbon energy. Take flying, take heavy duty road transport, take even passenger cars in large parts of the world. We still for a long time will be beholden to petrol and diesel and jet fuel. Now, for those very diffuse emissions where clearly CCS won't work, yes, I do believe uh, offsets and compensation mitigation measures work. But the focus, the main focus should be on reduction first. Whatever remains needs to be mitigated. Now, the end game in my mind will be that indeed a number of emissions cannot be avoided, therefore should be mitigated, and therefore CCS and NBFs have a role to play, carbon capture and storage and nature-based solutions have a role to play in the world. And I think we have to make sure that these solutions are the highest possible quality. And here I agree with many of the 
the, the criticism that is sometimes leveled at these uh, solutions, it needs to be high quality. And there are plenty of emission mitigation measures out there where you can argue that the quality is not as high as it could or should be. And therefore, we advocate for a high quality standards that we can all sort of adopt and adhere to. But in my mind, it has to be part of the solution or we won't have one and a half degrees. Now, I wanted to follow up on the other, uh, I guess, negative emissions technology that you've talked about here, and that's uh, CCS. Um, we've seen CCS, it's had incredible promise. It's been um, something that the industry has worked on for quite some time. And, but I guess what I'm wondering is, is you know, what is needed for CCS to really ramp up to, uh, to the level that, that is required for society to meet its goals, for Shell to meet its goals? Um, you know, what is the path forward on CCS? I know it's an area where you're uh, quite involved. No, I think CCS is, uh, again, one of those technologies that, that is going to be needed. But like with many uh, technologies that are somewhat pre-commercial, it needs to see a lot of cost takeout still. Now, uh, some of it will come through sort of original innovation, but much of it will come through repeated application so that we learn on the job how to do these things cheaper. Much in the same way, of course, as the pathways that have been followed by solar and wind or, uh, or cell phones for that matter. Uh, so we have to get on that pathway of repeated application and therefore cost takeout, a sort of Moore's law, if you like, for, uh, for CCS. We have to kickstart that process and that will take some time and effort. But CCS is another uh, disadvantage. And that disadvantage is that in many economies, there is no business model for it. It's just a cost. And therefore, you have to create the business model. And you do that, of course, by putting a price on carbon so that it becomes an economic proposition to capture and store uh, CO2. And that price on carbon, of course, needs to be a bit higher than what it traditionally has been. Now, so that kickstarting a higher price on carbon, a little bit of help perhaps from, from governments to make sure that these things work with not necessarily subsidies, but maybe supportive regulation, regulatory tools and whatever have you, that actually uh, needs to really get going. I think the beginning is there. I think more and more we now see governments realizing, now that they have done the sums, it doesn't work with CCS to get to net zero in their country, unless you want to get rid of all industry in your country. And not many countries are thinking that's a great idea. So I think it will come uh, and I think it will accelerate. And we believe that indeed in our portfolio, we are going to have a significant contribution of CCS by the end of this decade. Excellent. Well, let's shift over to that low carbon, um, low carbon energy part of the portfolio. I'd like to talk about your power strategy. And one thing that sticks out to me about Shell's strategy versus some of your other European peers is really your approach to um, you're, you're investing not you're investing in generation capacity, I guess, but you're more focused on selling power necessarily rather than producing as much power as some of your peers. And so why is it that you prefer this approach? Uh, why is it that this has been your strategy um, versus, uh, again, some of, some of your European competitors? Yeah, it's a good observation, Noah. And, and I go back to the very first question that you asked when I said our strategy is to work from the customer back. This is what we mean. And the reason why we uh, work from the customer back in our business models and in our investment programs and everything else is for a number of reasons. First of all, what not a lot of people realize is we sell much more energy than we produce. There's about a factor four between what it is that we sell and what it is that we produce. So if you have a 
say, 1% market share in primary energy, which is what we have. Uh, of course, that's small. You can't do very much with it. But with 5% market share, which is what we have on the, on the product side, you can do a little bit more. It's still small, but it's still significantly large in relation to many others. Take, for instance, aviation. We have a market share of about 6 to 8%. With that, we are the largest aviation player. Now, with this philosophy that you work with a very extensive market share, a large customer portfolio, can you now come up with business models that help these customers decarbonize? And if you could, could it well be that there is more value locked up in selling these products than in just producing a commodity? on the other side of the value chain. And we have decided that with our market share, our brand, our business models, and our very extensive network of facilities that we have around the world, we are better off working from that customer back and building the value chain that we need to serve the customer. But it starts with the customer. Now, the same is true with power. So we want to build up a power business that is focused on delivering customer solutions. We call it sort of power as a service, but in principle, it is indeed working from the customer back and building the renewable power assets that are needed to serve these customers. So sometimes people say, oh, you don't want to invest in power generation. Yes, we do, but we don't want to invest for the commodity market. We want to invest to serve customers that we believe are high quality customers, where we believe is more rent available in the entire value chain. Interesting. And I, I wanted to stay on that, that low carbon portion of the portfolio. And so Shell has been active in hydrogen for quite some time, um, but you've accelerated that activity under the new strategy. And I mean, let's be honest, hydrogen seems to be kind of the word that's on everybody's lips in the industry these days. Uh, there's certainly a lot of buzz around it. But what I would like to know is, you know, if you really seem to know what that value chain looks like in hydrogen. What does that industry look like in hydrogen? And so I would love to get your thoughts as to how the hydrogen industry might take shape. Is this something that happens regionally? Is it something that becomes a, an internationally traded commodity? And um, you know, most importantly, I guess, what types of returns might investors expect from these hydrogen investments? Well, no, you're absolutely right that uh, hydrogen is the favorite baby in the energy system. But let's bear in mind, it is a baby. It is a very small component in a much larger system, but it does indeed have a lot of promises. It's a cute baby and therefore everybody loves it. Uh, we think it, it will indeed grow into a significant business that will take probably a number of decades. And we believe we have a very strong starting position already. We started our hydrogen business back in the 90s. Uh, and we are actually reasonably well placed in terms of technologies and footprint and, uh, and solutions that we can already offer. I think uh, where most of the clean hydrogen is going to be deployed, uh, we talk about green and blue hydrogen, uh, there's of course plenty of grey hydrogen around already, but where most of the clean hydrogen initially will be deployed is in heavy duty transportation and in industry. Uh, and uh, and ideally, I think you will you will for us, of course, work with heavy duty transport because that's closer to our business models as well. Uh, now, where we are then focused is in in the core economies where this is uh, at the moment attractive and and where a lot of government support implicitly is available. So, uh, Germany, we have taken a position in our German refinery. We have one of the largest electrolyzers in the world in in our German refinery, ten megawatts. 
Uh, we are looking to expand that to 100 megawatts soon. Uh, we are working on a 200 megawatt electrolyzer in Rotterdam, which is another major position that we have. And then we're looking at another position more in the north of Europe, again with the view that you now can build a network of hydrogen supplies for heavy-duty road transport in the northwestern part of Europe. But at the same time, we're also looking at uh, California, uh, we're looking at China, uh, where we also have electrolyzers. We're looking at a 150 megawatt electrolyzer in China at this point in time. Uh, and again, uh, the focus is on heavy-duty transport and industrial uh, application. Now, ultimately, I think uh, these sectors will grow into other sectors of the economy. You can think of hydrogen uh, as, a, as a power storage uh, a solution. Um, and indeed, we, we do have customers for that uh, field as well. I think that will be smaller at first, but maybe larger towards the end. And of course, you can see that uh, liquid hydrogen can be the future LNG of the world, with a lot of energy being uh, located, or the, the sources of energy being located in other geographies where it gets consumed. And therefore, I think over time, we may well see a large international liquid hydrogen business, but I don't think that will be material in, let's say, the next decade or so. But then again, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, everybody thought that LNG was going to be immaterial for a long time, and it did, and now it's one of the mainstays of our portfolio. So you have to be early in these trends if you want to have a strong position. And our focus is double-digit returns on whatever market, or double, and double-digit market share of whatever market that will emerge. So double-digit returns from hydrogen investments. We'll uh, we'll keep an eye. We'll keep an eye out. I know investors will be very happy to hear that. But you mentioned LNG, and I'd like to talk a little bit about Shell's very expensive LNG portfolio. In your updated framework, uh, LNG was put in the transition pillar of your business, and so obviously it wasn't too long ago with the investments in BG and the expansions in the LNG business that you've made that that was very central. Um, to your growth ambitions. And so can you talk a little bit about the changing outlook for LNG, how that's evolved in recent years, and particularly given that we're seeing very strong LNG pricing right now, how you see kind of your future activities in that business? Yeah, thanks, Anoa. And thank you for the opportunity to perhaps also be a bit more nuanced with the nomenclature that we have for our different businesses. So indeed, we talk about uh, LNG, and, but also chemicals and products uh, as transition enablers. But the focus is not so much on the word transition, but on enabling. A lot of people think, oh, hold on, so these are the sort of uh, um, intermittent or businesses that are basically on the way out, relevant now, but not anymore tomorrow. I think LNG and certainly chemicals and products are going to be relevant for a long time to come. And they are indeed enablers in our strategy because they, for instance, enable the development of markets, like, for instance, the LNG business is a huge industrial uh, uh, footprint business that will help us get access to customers that we then help to decarbonize, either by decarbonized LNG or by decarbonized power or by other solutions that we, that we may have. And the same is true for the other transition business, chemicals and products, where we see that the footprint that we have of the assets 
are going to be key enablers, for instance, for building our hydrogen business on, our biofuels business on, even our power business and our synthetic fuels business. So it's not so much that we see these businesses as sort of on the way out and therefore they are transition. We actually see them as key enablers in building the energy system of the future. So LNG, think of it as a stayer in our portfolio. Now, the outlook is, um, I think, largely unchanged. For years, we have been saying there will be growth in the LNG business, uh, if only because of climate change pressures. You will increasingly see, of course, uh, economies switching from coal to something else. And to just believe that you can switch 100% from coal to 100% renewable, again, is a little bit of a silly notion. LNG will have a role to play in power, but also in industrial uh, energy demand and also in domestic energy demand in the large growing economies of the world. So we still believe that a growth picture of about 4% per year in LNG for many years to come is a credible assumption to work with. And so far, we have been proven right on these assumptions. Now, in the long run, think, you know, second half of this century, of course, many of our LNG positions will still be in play. Uh, building LNG Canada at the moment, I don't expect that to be wound down in the 40s. I expect it to still exist in the 50s and later. So whatever we build, we better make sure it is carbon competitive. It's first quartile. It can be decarbonized. And therefore, it's still relevant in a world that hopefully by then is a net zero world. So therefore, yes, you, you have to take a view on the longevity and the prospects of this business, but also the long-term resilience of this business financially, as well as from a climate perspective. Interesting, excellent. Thank you for that clarification on, on the transition portion of the portfolio. I wanna to try to, to bring this uh, full circle a little bit in terms of, you know, at one point um, you had had perhaps uh, the largest, perhaps the most ambitious shale portfolio of any of the majors. You had um, positions both in the US and abroad. You know, past executives under past strategies had paid uh, pretty highly to get into those positions. They were seen as long-term assets. Um, now you've got a much more concentrated shale position. You've monetized assets for, for value, obviously. But I guess what I'm wondering is, are there any takeaways or learnings from your experience in shale, which was at one time seen as, as kind of an industry of the future, that might inform how you approach your energy transition investments? It's sort of what have you learned moving into new areas that you might be able to, to apply to your energy transition outlook? Well, maybe a few things now. That may be a little bit more philosophical rather than you know technical or commercial. But it, sure. but I think one very important philosophical point that I think the entire shale industry has learned is that value matters more than volume, and in many cases, of course, uh, the shale industry was even rewarded for volume growth, uh, even if it went at the expense of value growth. And again, sometimes these anomalies can happen in markets uh, that, that form bubbles or get sort of hyped, etc. And it's probably fair to say that in the hype that existed in the early years of Shell, we were not immune to that either. Uh, so in other words, if you have a strong mantra of uh, value over volume, you better make sure that you repeat it every morning before you get into the office. Uh, and I think the same is probably going to be true for many of our energy transition uh, investments, uh, whether it is as power, whether it is as biofuels, whether it is as hydrogen. Uh, of course, sometimes you have to look at the materiality of a business. But in the end, if you pursue a strategy where value is put uh, on the second rung 
I think it is going to be unsustainable in, in the long run. I think that's probably the most important uh, uh, learning to take away from it on the business side. The other thing, which is the more uh, general um, uh, point, I suppose, there is a lot of change. In the last few decades, we have seen a tremendous amount of change, much more so perhaps than, than many decades before. Uh, and therefore, you have to be agile, you have to be nimble, and you have to make sure that you continuously ask yourself, is my portfolio still the right portfolio? Never mind how much attached you are to it. And therefore, you have to continuously also be prepared to take bold moves, to perhaps uh, concentrate in areas where you thought uh, you were not going to. And that's exactly what you see us do at this point in time. Agility, I think, is the name of the game in a much more dynamic world that we are currently in. Oh, thank you. I think that's really interesting and, and would like to use that to, to talk a little bit more about your strategic planning and the way that you're approaching how you allocate capital. Um, I mean, you've said that Shell is not going to chase higher oil and gas prices necessarily with additional upstream spending, despite the fact that we are seeing strong pricing right now. You know, I've got to think this is the first time that a, a, you know, a company like Shell, a major oil and gas company, you know, has said, okay, you know, our commodity, our, our oil and gas outlook isn't necessarily driving our investment decisions when it comes to pricing. And so if not oil and gas prices, then, you know, what is it that's driving Shell's long-term capital allocation decisions? What markers are, are you tracking out there that are informing how you put money to work? Well, I think the overall philosophy, and this goes a little bit back to our um, powering progress strategy, of course, where we say we have to focus on uh, on the uh, the creation of shareholder value and we have to focus on net zero and i need to go hand in hand and i can go hand in hand but what it means is that we have to change over time the portfolio of our company to one that is much more in line with what we consider the future of energy which is indeed yeah lower carbon so therefore probably uh, more power. Power is going to be a dominant factor in the energy picture, of course, in the decades to come, but also indeed biofuels, hydrogen and, and the mitigation solutions that we talked about. Now, of course, these are quite often still small positions. So if you want to really grow them into very large material positions, you're going to be free cash flow negative for a long time to come. In other words, investments are going to outpace the cash generating potential from these businesses. So our philosophy as a company is that, yes, we want to invest in that future of energy. And if we are going to grow our business, that's where we will probably look first to grow more in these areas, including marketing, because that provides the customer from which we have to work customer back. But that doesn't mean that our upstream business is therefore irrelevant. It's incredibly relevant because we can only pursue that strategy if we have the cash flows to do so. So upstream integrated gas and of course also the mature businesses already like marketing and chemicals, they have to provide the cash for the future. And therefore investing in these businesses is going to be needed to keep them the strong cash engines that they currently are. So my view is upstream needs to be a strong cash engine into and probably through the 30s. And we need to invest to keep it there. That's not a volume game, that is a money game. Integrated gas, same thing, maybe a little bit of growth. And then indeed the businesses of the future, yes, we will invest in and we are quite okay to invest more than these businesses at this point in time yield. Now, what return expectations do you have from these businesses? That is of course a matter of, well, how much risk do they have? 
what can the market give you? Uh, what do you expect from these businesses in the long run? And therefore, we have quite a differentiated approach to, well, this business needs to get at least 12% return, that business at least 15% return, etc. But that's what we laid out in our powering progress strategy, so that people can very clearly see where is the money going, what is the philosophy behind it, and what can I expect from that money for these projects to be considered successful. Well, thank you, Ben. Uh, we're coming up uh, closely here on time, but I wanted to get in one last question. Um, you know, obviously, government policy is key to the pace and shape of the energy transition. We've got the COP26 meeting coming up. There's been a lot of, obviously, a lot of buzz, a lot of momentum building up towards that. But I guess what I would like to know is, first, what would you like to see emerge from the COP26 uh, negotiations in terms of policy momentum? But then I would also like to know what you think is likely that we will see coming from that meeting. I mean, we have seen some very difficult discussions between nations. Um, uh, quite frankly, I would say we've seen a lack of progress, perhaps, um, from many key governments in terms of coming to agreements ahead of that meeting that might, might help us see real steps forward. So first, what would you like to see? Then what do you think is likely that we will see? Let me do it the other way around, nevertheless. Or Sorry <laughs> for ignoring your instructions here, Noah. But I think what we are going to see, and which is not a bad thing, by the way, is pledges of more ambition. And that's needed because, let's face it, the world at this point in time is nowhere near two degrees, let alone one and a half degrees by the end of this century. So we need to have more ambition. We have to say we have to work harder. We need to do more. We need to set the bar higher. And indeed, at this point in time, the best approach we have as a planet is to have sovereign governments to just say, I'm going to up the ambition a little bit with my nationally determined contributions. But obviously, and this is your first point, that's not enough. Uh, it's not enough to just say, I will do better if it doesn't get matched with real policy action and real results that actually depict progress. Because the problem is not so much only that our pledges were not enough, the problem is also that we didn't act on these pledges as a planet or as a society. So therefore, we need to do more in terms of policy implementation. Now, what I believe is important is two things. I can think of a whole range, by the way, but let me pick out two. And that is, first of all, that we have to have a much more granular approach to the more harder to abate sectors. It is somewhat pointless, somewhat pointless, to just have everything done on nationally determined contributions. How are we going to deal with industry? It has to be done globally. Steel has to be done globally. Aviation has to be done globally. Shipping has to be done globally. And if you add all these things up very quickly, you are going to find that the part that is best done sort of transnationally is a very significant part of the total emission cake. So I think a more sectorial approach where we have different pathways for different sectors that fit the challenges of that sector is probably the best way forward. And then indeed, of course, governments need to stand behind it. Governments need to stand behind, say, a, a biofuel mandate for aviation, or they need to stand behind uh, hydrogen support for heavy duty transport, uh, or they need to stand behind um, uh, other policies for decarbonizing steelmaking, and they will all be somewhat different. But unless we get that sectorial approach there, I believe it's going to be incredibly difficult to come up with really detailed, effective policies that will deliver these NDCs. 
That's point one. And point two, which is very important, is we have to have an international trading system for carbon. Now, we had that, it's called Article 6 in the Paris Agreement, was agreed in 2015, and here we are, six years on, not operationalized. I think that is a, a big black mark on the credibility of the entire effort that we have around Paris. So if we can't deliver that this year, I would be deeply disappointed. And so should be leading governments of the world. It'll be very interesting to see what happens here in um, well, not too many weeks now. It's coming up quickly. And I know the eyes of the world will certainly, certainly be there. That looks like all the time that we have today. Um, a lot to think about around how Shell sees its role and its future in the global energy system, and as well, how you see the industry evolving as we look at the energy transition rapidly accelerating. So everyone, please join me in thanking Ben for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Noah.